Guys, I saw a horror movie. Victory Screech! Yeah, insert applause, insert minion applause. That was literally my gameplay. everyone and welcome to episode 32 of plot devices you know let's go about 32 nothing uh i wouldn't know i'm not 32 and let's talk about this if you're turning 32 how come we're not celebrating the sweet 16 times two can we not have a celebration beyond like the age of 20 you know what yeah if, if we can have like adult bar mitzvahs like, we can do you know uh, adult sweet 16 absolutely you just turned 16 twice my co-host Noah Guzman, always with the bangers here. Uh, this is episode 32 of Plot Devices. We come here to talk uh, film, TV, nonsense, and news and reviews and talking all the, the past two weeks of everything in the entertainment world, along with some pretty big things that happened this week. Uh, Jordan Peele, of course, returned to theaters with Nope. Uh, we're going to be getting into that. Miss Marvel just wrapped its first season. I think excellently. We'll get into that later on. But first, we're cutting out basically all of the news for today in honor of our two pretty substantial topics. The Emmys, they're happening again. They happen twice a year. The primetime Emmy nominations released uh, about two weeks ago, literally a few days after our last taping. Tons of really big surprises and snubs in there. We'll get some of them in a minute. Uh, outstanding drama series. We got our nominees, Better Call Saul, Euphoria, Ozark, Severance, Squid Game, Stranger Things, Succession, and Yellow Jackets. Over on the outstanding comedy series side, we have Abbott Elementary, Barry, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Hacks, the Marvelous Miss Maisel, Only Murders in the Building, Ted Lasso, and What We Do in the Shadows. HBO basically led nominations throughout. I double-checked. I believe it's over 150 nominations for all of their shows combined. Succession was the big winner overall with 25 nominations for the show, including aforementioned drama series, uh, plus lead actor nominations for both Brian Cox and Jeremy Strong. Other top contenders included Ted Lasso and The White Lotus, both with 20 nominations each, only Murders in the Building and Hacks with 17 nominations each, and Euphoria with 16 nominations. Uh, the 74 Prime Emmys will be broadcast on NBC September 12th with the Creative Arts Emmys just one week before. Noah, over to you. Uh, we don't follow too much TV on this show, but we follow enough to be engaged. We, we, we actually review a lot of these shows just on this show uh, in particular. What were some of the big things that stood out to you in terms of this? Did you watch the nominations live, and what do you think of this new class of nominations? So I didn't check out the nomination announcement live, but now looking at all of the titles that are listed uh, for these nominations, you're right. A lot of these we have covered here on the show. And if it's not something that we're covering, it's something that we're talking about before we get the show started. It's you and I still being tuned into some of these very popular shows off of the HBO platform, off of Netflix, off of Hulu. Um, it's very interesting to see what platforms are leading the nominations wave like every year. I remember for a while it had been Amazon Prime Video with The Marvelous Miss Maisel just sweeping year after year. Um, but now it looks like HBO is taking the reins back. I'm not surprised that Ted Lasso and The White Lotus are up here. Although I haven't seen the former, The White Lotus has only received praise from me. And the theme of that freaking show is still saved on my Spotify playlist. It is wonderful. Anybody should go check it out. But um, a lot of these nominations look well-deserved, well-earned. Uh, I am going to say some of these do surprise me because I didn't find myself as convinced that Pam and Tommy was going to be nominated this many times. Um, but that's not to you know downplay any of that show's success. It's just something that surprised me when, when I was reading this list. Happy to see Squid Game up there. Happy to see Our Only Murders in the Building. I am most pleased to see one of my most favorite shows up there on the Emmy list again. Uh, you and I will be going through some categories and listing off our own predicted or, I guess, um, expected, like, 
winners that we want to see have their moment. And for me, I'm going to mention the RuPaul's Drag Race, baby. I absolutely love that show. I mentioned on the last episode that it was kind of my comfort show, but uh, RuPaul's got two nominations up there uh, in one category for best host for reality or competition program and best reality competition program. So I feel like you and I can kind of bounce around what we think, who deserves these flowers and these nominations. And it also serves as a recommendation to any of our listeners, you know, go check out some of these programs, go check out some of these titles. They are well worth your time if me and Brandon are speaking to you on it. You talked about HBO Max and the whole Amazon thing for a couple of years ago. I was just going back to last year's, and it's almost the same top three. HBO still led last year. Netflix still was in the second. But Hulu surpassed Disney Plus from from this past year, which is interesting between Pam and Tommy, Dope Sick, uh, a couple other things here and there. So Hulu has actually been really driving the program for the last couple of years, even though HBO and HBO Max is still pretty much led dominance in series. And I feel like that will continue for the next couple of years. And we can definitely speak to Hulu's success with the years and years of Handmaid's Tale oh, sure. uh, dominating these nominations, right? So I like that. I like knowing the associated titles that have really made these platforms shine. Uh, Succession is one we constantly revisit. And uh, moving forward, I just hope that with the, with the spinoffs that we get from The White Lotus, I wouldn't be surprised if HBO continues to lead the charge there. We're going to get The House of the Dragon. You know, let, let's yes. see what's to come for these programs. And even with Hulu, like, you know, it doesn't need it because it's a great show, but only murder is getting the respect it so eloquently deserves. For me, there were a couple of categories that really stood out. Um, for one thing, I know a lot of people, and we will get to Stranger Things later. We're getting to it next episode, we promise. Um, but once we do, Sadie Sink was a huge bet for uh, for supporting actress and did not get in. Wow. Are you yeah. serious? That That would have been so impressive to have a very young star up on that Emmy nomination list just from only a handful of titles. I know I recently learned that she played Annie like in on Broadway. Right. And so now to see her find success within, I don't want to say commercial, but within a TV program, something as huge as stranger things. I think that that would have been so impressive and I think deserving because she dominated season four. And stranger things did get nominated for 13 awards. So it is not, you know, downplayed at all. It's getting the nominations. Uh, also in there, a lot of network TV exclusivity. I saw a lot of people saying that Yellowstone was getting in there, which was kind of shocking considering how much, how many ratings that show gets. Uh, Blackish and This Is Us, both of which ended, did not get a lot of nominations. I don't think they've really got any. Obviously, Dope Sick in there. You know, we reviewed the show on this. I think it's excellent. I'm so glad to see that a show like that that was released, I believe, at a pretty mid-year point for television. Uh, I'm surprised to see that that got as many uh, as much love as it did. Personally, I'm absolutely pegging it for a limited series. I would love to see it win for that. And I am absolutely waving the flag for Caitlin Deaver for supporting actress in a limited series. All the respect to, you know, the White Lotus team and, you know, uh, Jennifer Coolidge. But, like, Caitlin Deaver is my pick for that. Brandon, I have a question for you. Is it too late for this series to be nominated for anything? Or did it just get no nominations? I'm thinking of Taika Waititi's Our Flag Means Death. I'm not sure because the Emmys aren't a calendar thing. They're more of like a like the Grammys will kind of thing. So I'm not sure if it is qualification or not. Okay, just one question, because I think that that's one title that I I'm looking at this list and I'm seeing all these different pieces from the same platform and HBO, one of them. I'm like, where's our flag means death? But hey, you know what? We'll get to that. Maybe they'll get their due recognition when season two drops or something. I have a few others that I just wanted to uh, shout out. One is going to be uh, in the category of best actress in a drama series. I have to mention Sandra Oh in Killing Eve. Uh, That show came at me like really at a weird time where I just binged the three seasons that I had available and they've continued to just 
I don't know, reinvent the initial story premise and uh, the chemistry between Sandra Oh and Jodie Comer just keeps getting better. And so I really think that that would be a deserving award. I hope that she's the one who takes it home in that category. Um, another is going to be, again, talking on the White Lotus, Jennifer Coolidge. Um, you, you know her for many things, but she is in the category of Best Supporting Actress in a Limited or Anthology Series or Movie. Uh, that is just another one that if you haven't seen it yet, please go turn on episode one of the White Lotus and just witness all of the hilarious moments in there. And lastly, there's two shows that are nominated in the Best Variety Sketch Series. One is going to be Saturday Night Live, and the second is a Black Lady Sketch Show. Um, I think both are terrific, but if you have not given a Black Lady Sketch Show time of day, please do do go check it out. There are actually some just straight up goofy skits in there um, that speak to like people of color and also just like, I'm not a woman, but I would imagine if you are a woman, you will get so much love out of that series. Um, I'm watching it and I'm just having a good time no matter who's on the couch with me. So check that one out. That is on HBO as well. I will call Hiad. Interesting about Killing Eve, both actresses nominated for lead actress, but not for a drama series. The show is not nominated for a drama series? No, it's not. Mm. Well, in that case, I won't be watching the Emmys. <laughs> well, All I right, will be, and we'll be giving you some sort of coverage when the winners come down. Let's move on to the even bigger topic. Uh, as as we get into uh, this weekend taping that we're in, fourth wall break, we're taping on Sunday. San Diego Comic-Con 2022 is still happening. There are still a couple panels that are happening, so there very well might be some smaller announcements coming. But we got all of the big things coming. And while it was not what everyone was expecting, it you know may have been a disappointment in some ways. We'll get into it. Uh, there was still a lot of stuff to get to. So we we're going to divide that into some trailer news, that a lot of things that dropped, and then a whole bunch of news that came out that we just really want to talk about. So as far as trailers go... We were not out of the market for trailers. We got some pretty big ones. Uh, the first official trailer for Black Panther Wakanda Forever came out and made everyone cry. And we're going to get into it. Uh, also new trailers for the She-Hulk series coming out in August. Uh, the first official trailer for Shazam! Fury of the Gods, the sequel to 2019 Shazam! All very excited for uh, that was DC's real big presence at their Comic-Con. We'll get to it. Uh, the first trailer for Dungeons & Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, which is a live-action Dungeons & Dragons movie starring Chris Pine and Roger Jean Page, among many others. That released uh, this past weekend. The first trailer for John Wick Chapter 4 came out. Uh, of course, Keanu Reeves' you know, Action Dynasty is back. We'll get into it. Uh, the first trailer for Teen Wolf, the movie, which Noah is going to touch on a bit later. The first full trailer for Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power was released. Uh, the first full trailer at the Sandman series for Netflix, of course, based on Neil Gaiman's legendary comic, was released. Uh, and the first sneak peek at both uh, Black Adam and the new Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur animated series were also released. So out of all those, Noah, that's, you know, all the big, really talk of the town has been the trailers. What among these really stood out and why was it Wakanda Forever? <laughs> It was Wakanda forever because this is how you deliver a trailer that has the emotional weight of its predecessor, like carried through. When I was watching this trailer, it has elements of the trailer that we just got. And I'm sorry to be the king of comparison, but we just got a trailer for Avatar to the way of the water. And it's no surprise that Black Panther Wakanda forever. The trailer really emits the same energy from that because who is introduced? Namor, baby. We have a new casting announcement in Namor for... Uh, the, thank you for that. He will be playing Namor in the upcoming Wakanda Forever Black Panther movie. My guess is as the villain because Namor... Uh, uh, He's been fans. on both Help sides, but like, come on. <laughs> come on. Is he like kind of like the Magneto, like kind of like balances on the fence? In a way. So this trailer just communicates that... A, Angela Bassett is going to knock this freaking sequel out of the park. Um, I love 
action teases that we got with Okoye at the center. Um, we have Ayo back. We have uh, the Dar, the name of uh, Okoye's, Okoye's group. What are they? Oh, the, the Dar Malaje. The Dar, the Dar Malaje. Thank you. There are going to be so many evolutions to the Wakanda that we've seen based off of this teaser. Like it's not even an official, official story trailer. It is the teaser and it is delivering visuals. It's delivering color. It is, it, it's going to be, high on my anticipated list and i'm so excited that we're getting it before the end of the year um this is how you do an emotional trailer like i I just felt it so strongly in my heart and you you're damn right i started crying brandon i literally remember i I was making the joke to my friend just like oh yeah 24 hours ago we were all saying oh i don't know about wakanda forever like yeah it's kugler involved but you know we lost chadwick and you know all the mcu stuff beforehand i don't know and now literally everyone is in shared collective tears and it is a tremendous first trailer. It gives us exactly the visual return to Wakanda we need with some really great expansions. Obviously, the stuff with Atlantis and Namor looks dope. Um, I, I know some people, when the concept art originally came out, when Tanakh was not officially cast about the whole, like, oh, it's going to be more Central American inspired. Like, people were really behind that. I think it looks great in person. I think the stuff with, like, you know, the kind of mutations amongst the Atlanteans, all the underwater stuff looks great. But then you have the actual cast back. And, like, Nakia looks great. Shuri looks amazing. You get your first look at uh, Dominique Thorne as uh, Ruby Williams, who's going to be in the Ironheart series. Um, and then, of course, like Maku and then Angela Mother Effing Bassett delivering the line of the trailer that I admit I got teared up on. It just looks tremendous. It reinstated my faith in a movie that I already had a lot of faith in. It is a great way to kick off Phase 5, which we will get into, but it's a great start to it. And approaching that Phase 5, I just can't wait to see Wakanda used more efficiently in the mcu like i know that we got it a lot at the end of phase three with the end game and infinity war kind of or no sorry black panther and infinity war both just occurring in wakanda i'm ready to see now its impact on the world and it looks like um you know bassett as the queen goes to like the un or something and she delivers a speech so i'm curious as to what what stakes are what the stakes are in this new movie where we have a villain who is, you know, like the, it's Marvel's Aquaman, you know, it's, it's Namor. So let's figure out what that clash is going to look like and whether the, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Will they defeat a common enemy together? I'm not sure if I'm ready for another Mechazilla kind of situation with Godzilla and Kong, but we're going <laughs> to fill it. We're going to figure it out. Um, you know, I, can I, I was going to say, can I run a quick theory by you? Go ahead. Well, so number one, it poses a question. Who do you think is in the suit at the end of the trailer? Oh my gosh. Are people upset that we got like a shot of a new Black Panther? I haven't seen anyone upset yet, but maybe there are. I think I saw some differing opinions on Twitter, but oh my gosh, I'm not going to throw Twitter at you. I'm just going to say that I'm excited that we're getting a new uh, Black Panther. I know at least from what we've seen so far, and at least from what the language has been around this sequel, that it's only being executed with care and um, respect for uh, the passing of our of our star Chadwick Boseman. So uh, let's see who's underneath that mask. I I know he's dead, but why do I still feel like it, it's going to be Killmonger? <laughs> <laughs> like why why, do, why am I expecting that to happen? Um, I don't. Who knows if they'll go the Shuri route? I think that the fans have a criticism for that actor, so I don't think that that's going to be the route that they go. But who's who's to say? Brandon, you got predictions. I would love for it to be Nakia. I think in all like bets wise, it's going to be Shuri because it's the most natural progression, but it ties into my theory, which is that you hear, you know, the line with Angel Bass in the trailer going like, and my family is dead. So what happened to Shuri? I don't think Shuri dies. My theory, and 
prepare for this to be completely wrong in a few months, and I will probably cut this out of the episode. But I wonder if the idea of Black Panther 2 is after T'Challa's death. Shuri, you know, at the end of the first movie, we see her at the community center. She's, you know, being the outreach to kids and she's, you know, expanding science and being awesome. But I wonder if the conflict comes between her and Ramonda in the idea of like, yeah, T'Challa went into the outside world. He faced Thanos and he, you know, saved the world and then he died. So like, what happens if we expand like our worldly possessions to do that? And Shuri's like, no, like that was his dream. We need to follow up on it. And it leads to the split where like Ramonda ousts Shuri from the royal family. Like, I'm always, I'm almost wondering if that's the angle of it. And like, maybe Namor is like the worthy challenger for the throne. Whoa, dude. I am, you've told a story that I could see happening. Like, I, from that's one not, line. <laughs> that is not too far from what we can expect from Wakanda forever, but we just know that it's coming. We're going to be talking about it very, very soon. Uh, just some quick rapid fire is, uh, I am Groot looks adorable. That's going to be a collection yeah. of. It's going to be a collection of shorts, which I think is appropriate for a little plant that can say three words. Um, but go watch the trailer. It is, it looks stupid. It looks it's so cute. Dumb, but so exactly. It's so cute. Um, in the same vein of like, uh, it's just check it out. You, you'll realize what I'm talking about. Um, John Wick chapter four, man, we're going to be talking about action later on in this episode, but I got to say that trailer excited me more than some of the action that we're going to be discussing later. Like John Wick's action is just so heavy hitting and the types of stunts, the freaking, the speed of it all just thrills you even in this trailer. So do I know what the hell is going on? Do I know why? Like, do I know what's going to happen to Mr. Wick before chapter five? No idea. I'm absolutely ready for it. Please give me another scene with him and his beloved dog. But let's move on to a very exciting topic for you, my fellow co-host. It is Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. I know you cannot wait to talk about it. The thing is, I remember hearing about this and thinking, okay, sure. Because I've seen the 90s, early 2000s, whatever it was, the Dungeons and Dragons movie that came out. It was not good. And I remember hearing about this thinking, oh, it's the director of Game Night and, you know, what's going to happen. It looks so fun. It looks so fun. And, like, this is coming from someone who has problems with D&D that we don't have time to get into right now but like the actual like chaotic nature of the best D&D campaigns I thought was so distilled into this Chris Pine looks great uh the young girl who plays the shapeshifter I forget her name but she looks fantastic it just looks fun yeah the effects maybe don't look totally finished but like as long as it has that sense of chaotic purpose to it that like we love from Vox Machina and that kind of you know mood pulls through yeah I'm totally into this Michelle Rodriguez is playing like some kind of barbarian axe-wielding badass and you you're looking at her and you see the promo images and you just go yeah she's gonna kill this like yeah she's gonna nail it you know i love fantasy i love that um we're getting reg jean page is that uh, how I, say? I think it's roger roger jean page i am so excited to see him just in the, the versatility from page across different roles is just um starting to blossom i think in his career at least for the people who are uh watching it from my side which is like seeing him pop up in in big motion pictures sophia lillis are you yes, kidding me? That's who it was. Are you kidding me? She is the shapeshifter. I did not even, I did not even see, I didn't make the connection when I saw her face. Holy crap. She turns into like this beast of a, like, it's like a behemoth. Like this is like a bear with a bird beak. I don't know what the hell is going on in this movie. We just talked about plenty of trailers and I think that, you know, we're going to have to pause the discussion there. There is so much more to pull apart, yeah. but there's, there's plenty of news that we also got. Like, even if it wasn't teased or shown footage of so much was announced, what can you share? 
Well, we need to start off with Marvel again, and I know some of you are tired of hearing that, but the reality is that that was a lot of the discussion, and boy, did they bring some things. Uh, we got a lot of panels. There was a there was apparently Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 footage shown, but it has not been released yet. Uh, there was some footage of Ant-Man Quantumania. That was also not released, but what was released to us was some very interesting slate news. Uh but the full Phase 5 MCU slate has officially been revealed as of now. Uh, 2023, next year, is going to have Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, the Secret Invasion series, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, Loki Season 2, Echo the series, which is going to be the spinoff of Hawkeye with um, uh, with a Lockwood Cactus character, uh, the Marvels, which is, of course, going to be the Captain Marvel sequel, Blade is finally coming in November of that year, and then ending it off is the Ironheart series. 2024 is going to be Agatha Coven of Chaos, which has been renamed from what the original series was. Uh, Daredevil Born Again, which is the new Daredevil series, again, starring Charlie Cox, which will be 18 episodes. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Captain America New World Order, the um, first film with Sam Wilson's incarnation of Captain America will be coming out that year. And Thunderbolt, which I mentioned on Quick Hits a couple weeks ago. Anthony Mackie will be returning as Sam Wilson in that Captain America 4 movie, which we cannot wait for. Probably the biggest news of all. Phase six, we got some teasers for in that Fantastic Four is now officially set for a November 2024 release, which is, I think, way sooner than some of us thought it was going to be. But then the big news, Avengers the King Dynasty is dated for May 2025. And just following that, six months later, in November 2025, Avengers Secret Wars. Okay, sure. No, what stands out? Uh, Are you saying that we got... Wrapping up phase four, we're not even done yet. Wrapping up phase four, we're just thinking, oh, well, we'll see what's to come. We got phase five titles announced all the way through 2020, well, phase five, all the way through 2024. And all of a sudden, Kevin Feige, what are you doing? Did you realize like how much fans would freak out if you said, okay, now that we've announced phase five, next slide, please. <laughs> phase six of the MCU. That's insane. It is it is wild to expect two more Avengers movies and not even have an idea of what that team is going to look like. Like, are our captains going to be um, this newly instated Black Panther? Is, are they, is it going to be Captain Marvel? Is it going to be Doctor Strange? Doctor Strange. Where does the Scarlet Witch fit into all of this? I am I'm all of a sudden now thrown back to when I was looking forward to Infinity War and Endgame and just expecting those to blow me away. Now we are at a new chapter and that's the finish line. I absolutely cannot wait. We already got excellent renditions of Kang um, because he will be playing, you know, different versions of Kang um, from Jonathan Majors. And of all of these that are listed, I think fans will get confused about secret invasion and secret wars. Like people who don't like, know. Yeah. I think they're going to get confused with the whole secret element, but um, I know that Amelia Clark, I believe she's attached to the secret invasion series. Yes. So I I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Marshala Ali in blade is going to blow us away. I think that uh, we got a tease at the end of eternals for Kit Harrington to be involved somehow. That was, that was Mahershala Ali's voice at the end of eternals absolutely i love my game of thrones babies coming over to the mcu uh <laughs> but let's talk about some of these disney plus series two in phase four we're gonna get another season of loki of course with so many characters and actors reprising their roles i absolutely am stoked for that um iron heart is another one that i think i have questions about but i just cannot wait to experience it uh and then daredevil brandon let's talk about that because ha- first of all have you seen the netflix series daredevil of course of course i th- you know what? Why did I ask? I remember you knew who Kingpin was. You knew who Kingpin was well, when we me, watched Hawkeye. I, let me rephrase. I never watched the last season. 
Well, my question for you is, do you think pressure from fans really drove Marvel to like reconsider deals with Charlie Cox as Daredevil again? Because we're not going to, as far as we know, we're not getting renditions of, you know, Jessica Jones or the return of like Luke Cage, all of, all of those Netflix Marvel heroes. What do you think led to Daredevil becoming a project again? I think it was a couple things. I think it was the underestimation of how big of an audience those Netflix series had, because I think once that, you know, Ike Perlmutter Netflix merger kind of ended and those characters wrapped back into Marvel, I think there was an idea of like, let's use them again. I don't think there was an idea of how big those fandoms are. Like I, even before, you know, No Way Home reintroduced Daredevil into the universe, I heard so many people, and I'm sure you did as well, just like, bring back Jessica Jones, bring back Punisher, bring back Daredevil, obviously. And I think that kind of reinvigorated the idea of like, oh, maybe we should bring back these incarnations. And I think the other thing, again, it's 18 episodes. And I'm a little surprised at that because Disney has been, for better or worse, very adamant about six episode series. And the fact that we are expanding it for this show in particular tells me that it's going to have more to do with the Netflix series than we think. But again, there's nothing confirmed about that. But just the idea that, you know, Charlie Cox is actually back in the mask is great. And we didn't even talk about the She-Hulk trailer. He's confirmed to be in that too. So that's interesting. There might have been a test made or a test executed when they when they brought in Charlie Cox for No Way Home. I wonder if right. everybody's uproaring over this return of a character made execs go, you know what, we are we are going to like this series. You know, we are going to start pushing this because fans want it. Um, I'm going to be honest, the Daredevil experience I have is with Ben Affleck. So I need to take some time, take some time, take some step away, maybe go do some self soul searching and then come back to Netflix. And uh, I believe it's actually on Disney plus now, but wherever it is, I need to watch that Charlie Cox series because of the hype that everyone has um, given it. And uh, if it's well-deserved, I mean, if, assuming it is because it's coming back and I want to be prepared for that conversation. I would definitely say you should give it a shot because it's quite good. Um, that being said, I will narrow it down to three things because there's just too much to talk about with this. Slide. So much. Oh my uh, gosh. Number one, uh, Blade finally got dated, which is good. I'm glad we're getting that sooner rather than later. I, I could have sworn they were going into production like sometime this summer, but even if they're not, I'm glad that's getting uh, dated as far as it was. I lied. It's actually four things. Uh, number three, and again, a lot of this has to do with Phase 6, and I apologize to all the amazing Phase 5 stuff, but Fantastic Four, uh, we're definitely getting cast to D23 because there were rumors that, that was going to happen. You know, the people were speculating it could have happened here. I was betting it wasn't. But if we're getting casting at D23, and this is coming November 2024, that seems like a pretty apt timetable. To me, it seems a bit too soon, but we'll get into that because my other thing is Secret Wars. And on the one hand, I was saying, because I've read the Secret Wars crossover event for Jonathan Hickman, which you should all read. It's freaking phenomenal. The thing about it is that it's very Fantastic Four-centric. So at first I was thinking, oh, great, you know, Fantastic Four is coming here. It'll introduce plot points going into Secret Wars. Kang will obviously involved. Great. And then I remembered all the complaints from VFX houses and the stuff that's coming out about Marvel's labor shortages. And I immediately thought, this is coming in three years on top of everything else. And I got very worried very quickly. Absolutely everything in Fave 6 is not coming out in 2025. I think it's smart for them to move back a year. Absolutely. I, I mean, when he pulled out that next slide, I mean, even for the, even for the second half of phase five, I just thought to myself, well, you know, I'll take this with a grain of salt. You know, I know that quantum mania is coming for sure. I have high hopes about guardians of the galaxy and Loki season two. Um, but some of these other titles, I know that they like the Marvels is still shooting. So I wouldn't be surprised if the slate that was shared, you know, half of it, I think we can really take with confirmation the other half, you know, you gotta, you gotta kind of um, just, 
take it with a grain of salt, be prepared for some of these titles to be pushed a couple of years back, but absolutely, you know, we're still going to be rallying behind them. I don't think there's a title on here that I'm not amped and excited for. I think maybe Ironheart, but that's because I don't know what they're going to do with Riri Williams just about yet. But aside from that, like everything else, I think I have a degree of anticipation towards. We should also just quickly mention Armor Wars is still happening. The showrunner came out on Instagram and said that wasn't announced, but it is still happening. So Don Cheadle is coming back for all of you Don Cheadle fans. Uh, sorry, one more remark. Agatha, Coven of Chaos. Yes. I wasn't sure if Agatha was going to be as much of a standout character to have their own series, but we'll have to wait and see what's going to go on there. I mean, I hope that it dives specifically into the, the witch elements, the, the spell elements, the hopefully not the dark hold, hopefully like we, we expand beyond that. But when we get to that series, I hope that it just leans heavy into that. Um, and doesn't just, I don't know, create an origin for the character. We'll just have to check it out. There wasn't much coming out of Warner brothers. As we mentioned, uh, Sham, the fear of the gods trailer came out. We got a special sneak peek at black Adam. And that was basically it. We'll talk about it. Um, as far as some other big pieces of news, we already mentioned uh, Tanakh Huerta, after a long time of being rumored, is officially confirmed to play Namor in Black Panther Wakanda Forever. We also know that both Wong and Daredevil will be making appearances in She-Hulk, so there's that to be excited about. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, as I mentioned, we didn't get footage, but we got two new casting announcements. Uh, Chikori Iwuji, of course, who we love from uh, Peacemaker, and Maria Bakalova from Borat will be joining uh, the film as both Cosmo the Space Dog and the High Evolutionary, respectively. Uh, Chikori Iwuji actually came out in full High Evolutionary Evolutionary garb and apparently was super silly and ridiculous. Uh, we also got more information on Spider-Man Freshman Year, the animated supposed to be prequel MCU series. Apparently not. Apparently now it's an alternate timeline where uh, Norman Osborn will be featured heavily in the series. Essentially, if, what if that scene from Civil War happened, but instead of Tony Stark, it's Norman Osborn. So we'll be getting a kind of prequel story for Spider-Man with that. Tom Holland is not involved, but there is a season two currently in the works. Uh, we got more information on what if season two. A lot of interesting stories there. We're, we're going to be getting a Odin versus the Mandarin episode, along with that delayed Tony Stark and Gamora episode from season one. X-Men 97, we got some information that that will premiere next year with Magneto leading the X-Men. It'll be the first X-Men property under the Disney Marvel banner. Uh, and then aside from Marvel, we're getting away from that. Uh, Viola Davis is set to come back as Amanda Waller in Black Adam. Uh, we got some pretty hard confirmation that Zack Snyder will not be returning to the DCEU, although he will be guesting as a version of himself on an episode of Teen Titans Go, which I think is absolutely hilarious. Uh, in Star Wars news, which I was not expecting to hear this week, uh, Amanda Stenberg, they are officially announced to be the lead cast member of the Acolyte series, which is the new Sith-oriented series coming at some point in the next two years. We also got some Avatar news. Aang is actually going to be the focus of that first animated movie. So don't buy into the rumors we told you last episode. We told you it was going to be Kyoshi. It's actually going to be Aang now. Uh, Janet Varney made a really cool video announcing that. Uh, we also got news that both Azula and Korra will be getting graphic novels in 2023. And last but not least, to cap it all off, uh, the new Walking Dead final trailer for the last bunch of episodes coming out this year. That got released, so Walking Dead fans are excited about that. And Rick and Michonne, that whole Andrew Lincoln, uh, Dan Aguero movie, that's not happening anymore. It will now be a six-episode series set to premiere sometime next year. Noah, we can dive into, like, the Warner Brothers and, you know, what potential disappointment that is. But did any of these pieces of news stand out to you? Growing up, of course, X-Men has always been to me, the large motion picture superhero alongside Spider-Man individually. Uh, but X-Men 97 with Magneto leading the team, I think I, I see that being a, an exciting title to look forward to. It is, like you say, the first, uh, X-Men project under this new Marvel, uh, Disney junction. So that stands out to me. I'm not as refreshed on my walking dead 
lingo and <laughs> knowledge, but I know that Rick and Michonne do have a relationship that I was watching the show to see evolve and see it change. So they're getting their own spinoff. If it's on AMC Plus or like something that I cannot get access, I'm going to probably miss it. But I hope that they deliver it to something that I can check out because um, that would be something exciting to see. Uh, Rick and Michonne both have excellent chemistry. I hope that it uh, dives into their relationship both as like per- parenting uh, Judith, but also uh, exploring their characters more and what it means for them to be in this relationship in this apocalyptic setting. Uh, are you getting Walking Dead fatigue? I kind of did years ago. So that's why I'm kind of tuned out. But the Rick and Michonne makes me interested. I never watched the show, but when I looked at the franchise, I was like, wait, how many shows are there? Yeah, no, that's what it feels like. It's just like the wave of The Walking Dead suddenly became six different shows. And I think there's even like a new show involving a child, like a children's cast, like a teen cast uh, that I'm remembering right now. But those are the standouts for me. Of course, any kind of Avatar news, I'm already going to be hyped about. So I I feel like I don't need to speak to that too much. Azula getting a graphic novel. I'm down for us to do a plot devices reads kind of, you know, Azula core. We can read it graphic novel. We can post the pictures on, you know, we'll figure it out. We have ideas here. Um, I'm less inclined to be excited about some of these animated uh, projects like Spider-Man freshman year. While I am like, interested somewhat i just i'm worried about you know what that show will accomplish and how much really i'll I'll gain from that um is that one of the things that you're looking forward to it was and then as we got more details from this i was like well it's not definitively the 616 mc oh sorry the the main timeline mcu you know stuff with tom holland so like i wasn't necessarily excited for it i was excited to see what like you know grounded street level spider-man could be at that age this is apparently something completely different it looks cool like a lot of the designs look neat i'm happy to see that you know daredevil once again voiced by charlie cox is going to be in there uh we're getting stuff with the osbournes like that's great but like i want to see you know tom holland interact with like the spider-man mythology is that so hard to ask um that being said the ang stuff uh i would like to apologize because i seriously put some giant stock into those rumors from last episode and to be fair they were rumors um now to be fair we did not get any confirmation on the Korra, Zuko, or Kyoshi movies, but this was the first one confirmed. Oh my god, it's Aang and the group as young adults, and it's what I've wanted for years. I don't want to be disappointed, but I'm just, I'm really, really excited for it. Uh, and then the last thing I just want to bring up is the whole Zack Snyder and Teen Titans Go thing. I think that's adorable. Like, if anyone's getting up in arms about that, like, Zack Snyder is man enough to poke fun of himself and his style. So, like, if he's going to guess on that on a show that is apparently beginning really funny with its satire, I'm all for it. Now we are going to move on to our quick hit portion of the show that is, of course, where Brandon and I take one minute-ish each and talk about a piece of news that we weren't able to fit into our news segment for today's episode. We are going to take a moment now and do our quick hit. For any of you listening who aren't following us on Instagram or our new TikTok channel, I highly encourage you to go ahead and follow those. We are starting to record our quick hits as we present them to you, so I think that that could be a lot of fun. We'll plug those at the end of the episode. But yeah, we got some new content coming at you guys. Brandon, are you ready for today's quick hit? I am in just a moment. Let me just get my timer set up and my camera moved because I'm not used to video things. In five, four, one. So for those of you excited for the Mario movie coming out with Illumination, you may not have to wait too much longer for Nintendo-based movie properties. With the release of Mario Supper next year, Nintendo is trying to expand into more adaptations, and it might be sooner than we thought, because they just announced earlier this month that Dynamo Pictures, which was a uh, Japanese CG motion pictures, uh, motion capture type studio, they have just been acquired by Nintendo for the use of, quote, development of visual content utilizing Nintendo IPs. The company will officially be renamed as Nintendo. 
Nintendo Pictures. Uh, Dynamo was previously known for production work on series like uh, Persona, Death Stranding, and Nintendo's own Metroid and Pikmin series. The deal is set to go through in October, though no official projects have been announced. I have been waiting for something like this for a while. It seems like Nintendo has been really gun-shy about going into more film and TV projects with Mario. Probably had a really good relationship with the Illumination. I am still dying to see that Metroid action, you know, John Wick alien-style movie at some point. But like Pikmin, the, the results could be endless with this. I really hope they take their time with this. I hope that that deal going through does not, you know, make them jump the gun too quick. But I'm excited to see them expand on that and time. Holy crap. We are getting Nintendo projects in the very near future then, Yes. At the very least, it's a good sign for Mario that Nintendo is willing to work with other companies. Because after that first Mario movie, they were really gun-shy about it. The other thing, real quickly, is that this will not be the style of the Mario movie because that's Illumination. So it'll be something completely different, which Mm. I'm kind of excited for. I hear you. Okay, Brandon, thank you. I will go ahead and execute my quick hit. Three, two, one. Hello, Teen Wolf fans. Please stand up and start howling. Oh! MTV's Teen Wolf, though, okay? I'm not talking about the other Teen Wolf movie we'll get. Nah, I'm not going to get to that. Anyways, Teen Wolf from MTV will return for a film that is going to be on Paramount+. Plus. We have returning stars like Tyler Posey, who played the leading role of Scott McCall. We have Tyler Hecklin, who is the alpha from many of those seasons back in the show, uh, playing the character Derek. And it was announced that we are getting a returning cast member to this series, or to this movie. It is going to be Crystal Reed, whose character Allison exited the show very early on in its sixth season run that wrapped in 2017. Uh, this is a character that was near and dear to mine and my friend's heart. Someone we talked about every single week as new episodes dropped because of how entertaining that character, this this uh, werewolf hunter was. Um, but this announcement came at a Comic-Con panel where Sarah Michelle Gellar actually um, stepped up and presented the news as she will be starring in a upcoming spinoff series titled Wolf Pack. So I'm absolutely stoked for that just to see Sarah Michelle Gellar take on this kind of like uh, monster, like get, get her involved in that space again. It is where I think she absolutely thrives. The series is going to become from Jeff Davis, the original show creator. He's an executive producer on the upcoming film. All of this from a Hollywood Reporter article from Ryan Gajewski. Thank you for listening to the quick hit. I don't know why I don't know how to end this, but that is time for me. I'm like two minutes in, Brandon. This is going to be a weird recording, but I don't care. Uh, any thoughts on Teen Wolf? Are you a fan of the original movie? We can even speak to the MTV series. I grew up, I didn't grow up, but I was definitely involved with that MTV series and I found myself very entertained by it. I never watched it, nor have I seen the actual Michael J. Fox movie as well. Would you have wanted a series? I think the film is a great way to go. It's a nice send off for a show that wrapped six years ago. And I haven't seen Posey in a lot of projects outside of Teen Wolf. Uh, he was in this series called apocalypse now that i'm remembering i think it was on hulu but other than that i mean i'm ready to see him return to the screen and see what he can deliver especially to a character as you know as um connected to him as scott mccall in this teen wolf series and that's going to wrap our quick hit portion of today's episode go ahead and check that out on the socials it will be posted ahead of the full episode recording so can't wait for y'all to check that out and now we are going into our new movie review portion today we are discussing three titles uh two of which are available available for you on streaming platforms and one is a theatrical release which we'll be ending the discussion on brandon please introduce the gray man so the Gray Man is the newest project from the Russo brothers, actually. They're back, uh, although it hasn't been that long because they just premiered last year with uh, Cherry, which I admit I was really excited for. And I just still never got around to seeing because I didn't hear it was all that great. Uh, but this is their new, you know, big, bold, you know, action extravaganza for Netflix. Uh, it's one of the most expensive Netflix movies ever made. 
We'll talk about it. Uh, once again, directed by the Russo brothers, written by their uh, frequent writing partners, uh, Christopher Marcus and, Steve, and Stephen McFeely, alongside Joe Russo. Stars Ryan Gosling as Sierra Six, uh, a.k.a. Court Gentry, who at the beginning of the film, we find him alongside Billy Bob Thornton as a Fitzroy, basically a kind of, you know, student teacher, older, you know, CIA agent going towards Ryan Gosling's younger, more youthful convict, actually, which is the kind of twist of the movie, which is that uh, Ryan Gosling is being recruited into the Sierra program, which is essentially a bit of CIA, a bit of Suicide Squad, the idea of, you know, we're taking convicts and lessening their sentences so that you'll, you know, they'll do violence for us. So uh, Court, again, played by Ryan Gosling, is renamed Sierra 6, a.k.a. part of the Sierra program. He's sent to do really bad things, hopefully for the best of reasons. Uh, one day on a mission in Bangkok, 18 years later, he meets uh, Ana de Armas' character. They go on a bit of a mission. He meets Callum Turner, who plays another one of the Sierra agents who dies, but not before giving Ryan Gosling a sign of a uh, flash drive containing a lot of dirty laundry on the CIA's top official, Denny Carmichael, played by, once again, uh, Roger Jean Page in one of his post-Bridgerton roles. Uh, through a lot of means and machinations, Chris Evans is brought in as Lloyd Hansen, a former CIA contractor who is brought into Torture Six and gain the device back all while trying to save uh, Billy Bob Thornton's daughter, Claire, played by Julia Butters from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, it's a big globe-trotting adventure. Ryan Gosling goes through a lot of active sequences on the Armas. Chris Evans is, you know, mustachioed and, you know, charismaed up as usual. No, I want to go over to you. Uh, I had some weird thoughts on this movie uh, in that I did not really lean one way towards the other for it, and I really think the movie wants more out of me for it. Were you along the same line, or did you have more passionate feelings one way or the other? I think even in the charge into the gray man, I was mostly just riding a high on the casting on the lead, on the lead cast. You know, we have Ana de Armas, who we know is going to be starring in a new action spy thriller in Ballerina, which we discussed John Wick earlier. That is going to be hopefully a very exciting project for her. We just got her um, in No Time to Die, where she did showcase a, a standout scene of her doing action. So I was not surprised to to like see her in this type of movie. And I was ready for her to star alongside Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans doing another big project, you know, after Lightyear, but more importantly, like after all of his Captain America uh, work, just trying to fit his face into different characters was my goal here. Like I want to see uh, how he can execute a character that is sociopathic. Um, one big note for me was title cards, like, title cards, title cards. We have gotten the Russo brothers before with civil war taking us to, I think even then they go to Vienna, they go to, you know, maybe three or four or five different locations. Queens. I, I Queens, a, hey, I wrote down all of the places that they went to. I could read them to you. And so I'm going to Florida, Bangkok, Monaco, Turkey, London, Hong Kong, Vienna, Berlin, Prague, Wrapping in Washington, D.C. And there's two other title cards reminding you that, hey, time is passing because one of them is an 18 year time jump. And I think the other one must be about like three weeks, you know, or a year. I'm not sure. Um, I'd mentioned the title cards because I think that there's something significant in chopping your story that is the most expensive story, you know, made for Netflix, like you say, but also it disrupts the pacing for me. Like I was trying to become invested in this overall like weight of corrupt agency taking out their subordinates, I guess. Um, it's a familiar story. It's based on a novel. You, I, I find out in the end credits, but it, it just didn't work for me. I think it just reminded me that this is a globetrotting adventure, but then it stops me and it has me go, okay, but what did we just do in Vienna? Like what did 
our work in Bangkok accomplished for us being in Turkey now? Why am I in London? Why do I have to be reminded that I'm in these different places, if not just for the sake of saying, look at how wide this story is, or look at how far it encompasses. Uh, it's a weird note, but do you feel anything there? Like, did you feel disruption? Did you feel over overindulgence on that kind of element? I'm glad you mentioned that. I forgot to mention that uh, this is based on a Mark Greeny novel that is supposed to be the start of a franchise. And I will fully admit that for throughout most of the movie, I was like, eh, like a lot of this is perfectly serviceable and it becomes worse when you find out just how much resources there are. Like when you find that this is the, you know, the directors of, you know, Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame and Captain America Winter Soldier and then the writers behind those movies and it's $200 million and it's a frankly A-list cast. We haven't even mentioned uh, Danush who plays one of the uh, uh, the lone wolf assassins hired by Chris Evans who's a huge Bollywood name who's his uh, English debut. I found myself a lot of the movie, even during the action scenes, I felt like Stephen Winden, who shoots the movies, has worked on a lot of Fast and Furious movies. It shows because it feels like so much of the movie is insistent on showing you the effects behind it and the scale behind it. And it's a weirdly small movie. Like, at its core, it is a movie about Ryan Gosling trying to save a young girl from a corrupt CIA official. That's the basis of the movie. But it wants to be so much more than that. It wants to be also like this weird office dynamic with Roger Jean Page. It wants to have this kind of on and off romance type thing with Ana de Armas' character. It wants to have this backstory thing with Chris Evans' character. And there's just all of these like things spreading out from the movie where I just kind of felt like you're doing too much for a movie that really doesn't have to be. There's an element of exuberance that this movie just really doesn't deserve. And I found myself just going, you could be so much tighter than this. And I just was really disappointed by it. It's been a while since I watched an action spy thriller and I felt disengaged. Like amidst action sequences, I found myself really listening to the, really listening to the lines that were being said, uh, the script itself and thinking to myself, this is entirely, this is entirely too vague for me. Like why is everybody speaking in, in generic terms? Like it just didn't, it didn't ground me with any kind of like, this is, this is the, the, the central plot here. Like I did understand what you said, which was like, we're trying to save the, uh, the daughter. And we have this sociopath who's now, who he's like the, he's like the, the killer who's, uh, it's just so. There's that uh, line where Chris Evans is just like, Oh, I don't play by the rules. And I'm like, you couldn't have thought of anything better to say. Lines like that. Um, Evans as Lloyd, I think does, does the job. Uh, initially I did kind of feel like off put by it. And then I was trying to remind myself like, well, he's trying to play up like the insanity or like the, the hilarity of it all while being a villain. Uh, he does have some good lines in there. <laughs> like when he, when uh, Gosling pulls a, a grenade and, uh, Evans just looks at him and is like ballsy. And then they like both tumble away. Like I, I was expecting kind of those moments where like we'd get the comedic punchlines thrown at each other. Um, just from these two, you know, assassin versus assassin. Uh, but surprisingly, you don't really get that many moments between the two. You get like a very intense car chase slash like train chase in Turkey or you know one of the 18 places that I listed. And uh, unfortunately, I just think, I don't think that the action set pieces were enough to make me go, oh, I cannot wait for the next one because it felt like there were no stakes. You know, it really was that much like assisting Gosling with like the next takedown and save for one moment in the third act where um, it's that character and she has like this choke out battle with a cord um, against one other agent. Like, that uh, to Danush. Me, 
Danush, that was to me the most intense fight because I felt it like it just the way that it was shot. I love the props that they used, you know, trying to choke somebody out with this extent, like this long cord while they're on the opposite side of a table. Like the way that they flipped the, the coin on each other. I just, I was entirely engaged for that action sequence, but the others not going to lie. They kind of fell flat for me. I want to talk about Gosling for just a second because his career trajectory has been a bit weird over the last few years and that he's done stuff like, you know, the nice guys and Blade Runner where he's tried to expand into, you know, leading man type stuff. And then we'll do like something like First Man where that performance is so understated, but the power of that really comes in what he's not saying and just going to that facial degree. I think the Russos are trying to play that up. The problem is he's also trying to be like the wisecracking badass and, you know, very kind of smug about the whole thing. And the movie can never really figure out what they want uh, Six's character to actually be, minus when he's with Julia Butters, which I, who I think is fantastic in this. Like, you saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, right? Of course. Yeah, like Julia Butters is fantastic in that. And I remember seeing her in this and like, we're not recognizing you, but that's the kid from Once Upon a Time. And she's fantastic in just the idea of, you know, her actually being the voice of humanistic reason in the movie, I think, brings out the best in Gosling as a performer. Even the stuff with Chris Evans, it's not really there that much. There's not enough tension with Dearmas. Like, th- there's this really weird inconsistency with how they actually write Gosling's character that was just really disappointing. When we talk about the um, like the emotional weight being communicated, I didn't feel that from our actors, save for who you've mentioned. Like the young daughter, I felt like was the only opportunity for them to bring that out of Gosling because otherwise he plays a character who is entirely all like he's, he's too gray for the screen. Like he is the middleman where he cannot lean too far one way or the other. He doesn't, you know, we do have like a little bit of his past brought up as a way for us to understand his character better. But I think even that comes all too late Um regarding the Adamas. I think that she is supposed to be like this, the, the agent that is, the fox and wanted, you know, like the one who is willing to go against her, her faction, but it's, she leans, I think way too far into Gosling's storyline that it makes me question whether like, was she supposed to be loyal from the start or has she always been this kind of deferring agent? And like, even going back to uh Rishi Jean page, like slight spoiler, they try and build a connection between himself, Chris Evans and uh, Jessica Henwick from the matrix who pops up in here as well as like, Oh, they were kind of like old friends. They're on gets kind of like splits instead of like morality circumstances. And the only time I think that comes through is at the very end of the movie, there's a scene between Gosling and Jessica Henwick. That's actually kind of interesting, but I think that's more in her performance and her kind of restraint in that than any kind of like narrative development. Brandon, I'm prepared to move into ratings. How do you feel? We got two other movies to get to. Uh, for me, this is a pretty fine five and a half out of 10 uh, in that I think I was just disappointed more than anything. Like it's a big Russo Brothers directed action movie after whatever you want to say about their work in the MCU. And fair enough, I have a couple of complaints about that as well. But like those movies were kinetic and stylized at like definitive characters and stakes. And here it feels like they're trying to take something like The Fugitive or the early Mission Impossible movies and just really bloat it and up the stakes to it. And I feel like they really miss the mark on what makes those movies work. Again, like Chris Evans has a couple moments. Julia Butters is fantastic, and I hope nothing for the best for her career. And some of the technical elements are neat. There's um, there's that gun chase in, I believe, Budapest or uh, Budapest or Austria, one of the two in like the fountain area. That's kind of neat. Uh, but like other than that, I really didn't find a lot to this. I told my friend, if you are going to see this for like the big cast and the big stars for an action movie, then like yeah, Red Notice and that kind of appeal, you'll you'll get more than enough out of this. But like for me, I wanted a lot more. Funny enough, I think Red Notice knew what its characters were. And regardless of how I felt about that film, 
I at least knew what I was watching here. I think it's entirely too distracting when it doesn't need to be, especially in the opening sequence in Bangkok, while it's so colorful. And I think so enticing visually when you're trying to focus on what's happening between our characters and what's being said, there's entirely too many fireworks going off literally on the sides. Um, But I think that the Russo brothers might've found a, you know, my opinion here is that they're, working well when a character is recognizable enough just by appearing on screen, you know, because these are famous comic book heroes that have weight that is brought with them when they appear on screen. So perhaps that's why this one just didn't work because when we're showing flashes to our character of Lloyd in Monaco and he's like this, you know, psychopath who is torturing one of his victims, you don't know that based off of what you see and what you hear. But if there was a costume associated or if this wasn't a, like a character that was part of some kind of uh, other material, I guarantee this would have felt like a different movie. So I wonder if that's the pattern, you know, we'll have to keep watching the brothers, the Russo brothers. This is a five and a half as well for me. Um, I think that, you know, remove, remove half of these locations and just, you know, give that script another pass. Let's focus in on our story and let's have our characters bring the emotional weight and not just save that for the last 15 minutes. Um, that's all I got for the gray man. It is on Netflix right now. Another streaming title. It is going to be on Amazon prime video. This is starring John Cho and it is don't make me go. This is a tearjerker. Y'all. So get ready, Brandon. So Don't Make Me Go is the latest from director Hannah Marks. You might know her best as an actress from, uh, if any of you watched uh, that show, Dirk Gently's uh, Holistic Detective Agency, she was a main role on that. She's been in a bunch of other things. She's expanded into directing on the last number of years. She directed After Everything from 2018 and uh, Mark Mary and some other people from uh, last year, neither of which I watched. I was personally curious because she's going to be doing the adaptation of John Green's Turtles All the Way Down, which is a fantastic book that I cannot wait to see adapted, but that's a whole nother thing. Uh, Don't Make Me Go stars, as you mentioned, uh, John Cho as Max Park. He's an insurance salesman in L.A., a bit of a stickler, a bit of a not stick in the mud. He's just kind of, you know, going about his life, doing his own thing. He's not looking for a ton of excitement. Uh, minus a girl that he's seeing, uh, played by Kaya Scodelario from the Maze Runner movies. He's primarily just worried about taking care of his mixed race daughter, uh, Wally, played by Mia Isaac. One day, Max goes to the doctor for some headaches, finds out he actually has terminal cancer. Basically does not decide to tell Wally. And instead decides, you know, I think this is about time that you should meet your mom. Uh, there was a lot of stuff with uh, Wally's mom in the past where basically she just ran off and they haven't heard from her since. So they go to track down uh, her now husband, played by Jermaine Clement. And it turns out this whole road trip between uh, John Show and Mia Isaac's character, father-daughter just going across the country to what is supposed to be Ohio and turns into a lot more. It's about, you know family and lovingness and, you know, the little white lies we tell each other and how those can, you know, escalate into bigger things. Uh, I reviewed this for ASU Odyssey. Noah, you decided to check this out purely on your own will. What did you think about this? Because we discussed it early on and you had some pretty uh, serious feels for it. If you heard me sniffling at the top of the episode, that's why. Um, but no, this is a film that I think it sets itself up to be like this parting tale between a father and daughter. It's one of those movies that uses a road trip to really ground its beginning and end. So you're curious as to what's going to happen on the journey. Uh, what kind of developments are we going to see between our characters with with them being uh, a parent and child? And is it going to be kind of like cliche? Are we going to get, um, you know, the tearjerker moment is coming because at the top of the film, you, you experience that diagnosis with uh, John's character, um, Max. And so I was prepared for a road trip. I was prepared for the road trip story of a father trying to leave his daughter with as much of world experience that he can provide 
knowing that his time is ticking. Like he's, he decides that this road trip is going to be an opportunity for him to teach her how to drive. They have a lovely moment in a casino together. Like there is, I think plenty of scenes in here that just work because of what it means for a parent to introduce their child to, uh, that felt really endearing to me. I felt really, uh, you know, not connected to it, but at least I was with them in those scenes. It felt, um, I was engaged entirely. Uh, I think John Cho plays this emotional father that is struggling to communicate goodbye to his kids. So effectively, I, I was enthralled by his performance. Um, same goes for the actress that plays Wally. Uh, I don't have her name in front of me, but I just want to say that, uh, I, I like their dynamic. Like they convinced me that they had a parental and, uh, you know, family relationship. Oh boy. Oh boy. Does it pack a punch? Uh, Brandon, did you find that the messages you were getting were clear to you or did you have to sit on it and then decide how you really felt? Because sometimes these movies, you know, they take off with their message right away. Other times you really do got to ask yourself, what did I watch? I think the message works enough. I think, again, going back to that idea of Max as a character is so, you know, again, I'm not a parent. I don't know how that feels, but like I can gather the idea of when you have someone who is dependent on you or even if you feel as dependent on you, that idea of, you need to keep yourself as that, you know, statue of morality and physical health and well-being as possible. And I felt that John Cho was really bringing that forward. He really dives into the element of, especially the choir moments where, you know, Wally will say something of like, well, you're not dying already. And there'll be like a look on John Cho's face and you realize like, oh yeah, this guy's super talented. Why hasn't he been in everything? That's a whole nother thing. Um, but Mia Isaac, I think is really quite good in this. She nails the bratty undertones of Wally as well, but also like the really lively elements. Like, there's an element like where she's, you know, asking about uh, John Joe's character's past singing career or like asking about her mother and like actually being inquisitive. And it's not just, you know, a kid on her phone. And they even make a joke about that in the movie. Like there's a really great dynamic between the two that as you go through the movie and if you are willing to sit with it, those walls continue to break down and you feel like you're part of the duo as well, which I felt as a viewer, I found really rewarding, especially as the dialogue is just quirky enough. Like it's not, you know, it's not a heartfelt moment. And then, oh, here's a joke. Like it actually feels like kind of that nervous back and forth humor that we all kind of have with our parents at some point. I'm going to now praise this film for its technical element of introducing each new city with its own little jivey tune and a title card that worked for the movie. Like this is it does a have a great where, soundtrack. This is a movie where I felt not distracted every time I got Louisiana or, you know, the, the different states that they're traveling through as they popped up, because it reminded me that this is a journey that they're taking together. And the, the with each new city that they enter, I can only expect like, it, it doesn't, <laughs> of course, this is a road trip movie. So you might get bored when you stand in the car, but Hey, little miss sunshine is a road trip movie. And that is a joy. So um I just wanted to praise it on that because I did uh, bash the gray man for that same reason. Um But did you want to touch on like on what that punch is at the end and like what and and didn't that how about this how about this how did you feel the punch at the end either contributed to this story or did you feel that it might have taken away from what could have been experienced well i only watched it once i didn't get a chance to get a rewatch of especially just the end portion uh i didn't care for it I remember watching it and just, and without spoiling it, because it does kind of change the way you look at the movie. There is yeah. a thing in the, and you, the thing is, it starts out with a line of dialogue from Wally. And when you hear that line, you think you're prepared for what it is. And then when the ending comes, you think, oh, and as it keeps going, you think, oh, and it was more of a disappointing no, in that I felt that this was going to be a really consistent, heartfelt sense of, you know, what family trauma can affect someone, like how long you have to spend with someone and what that can actually, you know, affect your mental state as. 
it tries to go back through the movie and kind of paint the picture of like where we were leading and like what it actually is. And I found myself going, no, I don't think this works. Like I, and apparently I'm not the only one. Cause apparently a lot of people have been critiquing the third act, but I, yeah, I'm with, I, uh, did you get more out of it? Cause I found it completely jarring. You know, they don't set you up for something like this, but they definitely, they definitely tell you at the start of the movie, Hey, you know, there is a crisis between, uh, there is a crisis of health that we have in our lead character. And what will that look like if you have to tell the one person that you love the most, like that your time is ticking. And so to wrap the way that it did does kind of sour it. Absolutely. But it doesn't take away from like those moments where I really appreciated the, both the performances, the the script and the consistency of, of this journey that the two were taking together. I, I was always on board with that and Thankfully, the ending, when it does happen, it's the last, like, I think it's less than 15 for the end of the movie. Like, it happens, and they tie it up immediately. And you know what? I will say, like, going away from that, because that is one of my biggest negatives about the movie, I think one of my biggest positive movie is right before that, which is some of the stuff with the mom. Uh, I think throughout the movie, there's some foreshadowing of, like, who the mom is and, like, what the relationship between Max and his wife actually was. Uh, when Jermaine Clement comes in, he's an absolute, you know, jerk bag, and he's, you know, great at it. But, like, I think those kind of hints peppered throughout the movie, I think, really paints a bit. And, again, they drag you into that dynamic of, like, Max knows something but not enough, and Wally knows nothing, so they're all kind of going towards this goal without really knowing what they're going towards. And it makes you kind of, yeah, I'll go along for the ride and the soundtrack's good and, you know, the visuals are fun. Uh, there's actually a really great sequence. I love how when they stop in Texas, she meets a boy and they kind of change the tune of just like, oh no, like I'm with someone and she's trying to play it much more like a straight romance. It's it's kind of really great breaking of tropes that I really appreciated. The director, Hannah Marks, I think has some recognition here that I think is deserved. Uh, if it's... I don't know. I don't know more details on the upcoming projects from Marx, but I know at least that that is a name I'm happy I know now. And uh, this kind of tale, I can't imagine is easy to take on. It makes me feel like it's based on a book. Is it based on a book? Not that I know of. I believe it's an original material. Okay, wonderful. Um, but yeah, do you have any? Hey, uh, for Odyssey, was there any notes that you wanted to share here that you've that you would mention in your article? Not particularly. I think I nailed all the big ones. Uh, and it's again, it's. I think overall, and this kind of ties into my rating too, if you can buy into the ending, that that ending kind of heartfelt sense of maturity to it will really stick for you. It just, for me, it kind of, it took the movie down a couple pegs, but again, like you, it doesn't diminish the really good fun that I had with them. And with that being said, I can go ahead and take off on our ratings. Um, I did have a different rating at the top of this conversation, but so it went down 0.5 of the points because the lovely Mr. King here has a way with his words and helps me sway my opinion when I'm not too solid I'm a silver tongue mania. (laughs) Absolutely, but not the silver tongue from Vox Machina, okay? You know what we're talking about. All right, we are looking at a rating of six and a half out of 10 for me. Um, I don't think that that's low for this film. I think that it actually like gives it praise for what it was able to accomplish with its characters and its relationships. Um, When it's a movie that is centralized with those um, relationships, you know, we talked uh, cha-cha real smooth a couple weeks back. I just think that I, I value when that communicates to the screen and I value when that's easy to pick up and it's not an effort for me to try and get to know these characters. Um, six and a half out of 10 for me. I'm actually going to go a little bit higher. I'm giving it a seven. First of all, any movie that has a pivotal scene with Iggy Pops the Passenger, automatic brownie points for me. That song is fantastic and the way it's used in the film is really, really great. Uh, but that being said, like, I think I could buy into a lot of the dynamic that John Cho and Mia Isaac are going for. Again, keep that name in your back of your head, Mia Isaac. She's really great in this. I know she's in something else this year, and I will hopefully put in the time description. But like, I like the 
I like the idea behind it. It goes into some really mature conversations between parents and their kids. It goes through, yes, the digital divide, but also kind of the faults of the past generation and kind of reconciling with both of those. It goes into trust. It goes into little white lies. And up until that last third of the movie that turns the movie on its head, I was really into it. And even that last third, I think, does pack enough of a punch to where I could recommend it to certain audiences. Uh, as I mentioned, it is streaming on Amazon Prime. I believe it also has a small theatrical release right at the moment, but you're better off just catching it on Amazon. It's a fine movie. And while it does not you know, make me lose my mind over that eventual Turtles All the Way Down movie, you're right. Hannah Marks is absolutely a name to keep track of as a director. But that being said, we're going into the movie that pretty much everyone came here for. Jordan Peele, he's back and he has a new movie out. It's called Nope. Uh, he's continuing with the short titles for us. And uh, Noah, I'm going to ask you the impossible question. What is Nope about? Who the hell knows? Okay. From the first trailer from, I think that we're going to have fun with this. Let me just go ahead and start. So the IMDb, IMDb description, I'm going to give it to you first, and then I'll go ahead and give you my own. The residents of a lonely gulch in inland California bear witness to an uncanny and chilling discovery. The promotional image that they have here is of a horse being looks like kind of like levitated. Maybe it's being flown. It All it looks like is it's going straight up into the skies with debris all around it. And you have your, uh, your notable uh, leading cast with Daniel Kaluuya, Kiki Palmer, Brandon Perea, but my description is going to go as follows. Nope centers around OJ Haywood and Emerald Haywood, played by Kalua and Palmer, who are brother and sister and like legacy owners too. They train horses for movies and they've been doing it for years and years and years. Um, generationally, it's like the, the responsibility of it has been passed down. If you see in the trailer, you see Kiki Palmer, um, delivering the line of, uh, you know, her great, 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 great grandfather being involved in the motion picture industry, uh, since it began. So it really holds on to that historic element for this family. But what it's about is all of a the sudden there are strange occurrences going on in this like planal area, like this ranch kind of area. Um, the two main locations here are going to be the house and where they train the, where they train the horses for the movies. And then there's also like a small, like kind of carnival, like kind of like fun land place going on just down the road uh, where we have Steven Young's character leading kind of like a showman, or he's like a ringleader of sorts. Uh, we don't entirely know what's going on there, but all we know is that there is uh, a bird, it's a plane, it's subversion in the sky, okay? You are not entirely sure what you're signing up for when you go into this movie, but by the time you walk out, you have more questions than you do answers, but you've had a hell of a good time watching it. I'm going to not talk about the main forces of evil in this movie because I think that that is the appeal. It is the Jordan Peele. Brandon, would you agree that we should stay on that side of the fence for this discussion? I will only because your pun was good. I appreciate that. So <laughs> without further ado, I'm going to dive into some of my notes for this film. Out the gate, I just want to mention that Kiki Palmer is the star of this movie. Um, while she and Daniel Kaluuya both lead the cast, her character really has the opportunity to be reactive and emote and be charismatic in ways that I haven't seen from Palmer on the big screen. Um, that's not a fault of mine, but more of a fault of the industry, not giving Palmer her like freaking do uh, roles. I think the last time I saw her was like in the Scream series or even like, I couldn't tell you. Oh, uh, no. uh, uh, Scream Queens. Scream Queens. Um, and it, this movie just solidifies that Palmer is uh, is a Scream Queen. And I want to see her do more horror because she does this so well. Um, this movie doesn't pack a lot of gore, but I don't think that it has to given the uh, 
given the entity of evil that they're facing off against. Um, I feel like even saying that is giving away too much. But uh, my high remarks for me are Palmer's performance, um, Peel's just complete dive into the sci-fi of this movie. I think that sci-fi pictures typically teeter on the edge of absurdity. And when they finally lean into it and just go straight for it, I'm talking Annihilation. I'm talking... um, other titles aren't coming to me right now, but I just loved that Peel just, I think, let him loot, let himself loose. And he just threw himself entirely at this genre and audiences hopefully aren't polarized. Like I hope that majority of critiques have been, you know, positive uh, because I really like the ambition here. Steven Young's character has a terrific backstory that we explore it's grisly and it is remarkable for where it's placed in this film given the fact that it's not the focus the focal point um but we'll get into it you know brandon you are the co-host here on plot devices but you are not the go-to for horror so how did it feel to sit through this picture and first and foremost i i'm so thankful that you were willing to uh involve yourself in this discussion because i couldn't i couldn't do this alone man i needed you guys i saw a horror movie yeah, insert applause. Insert minion applause. Yeah. That was literally my game plan. Uh, no, but I, I saw this because I had heard from people who were horror aficionados that it is the least scary of Jordan Peele's movies. And considering that I was Absolutely not going- true. Yeah, absolutely. Well, because like, can you attest that like, I didn't see us because I was so terrified of the trailer? It delivers that. This is not that same picture. I did see Get Out, and I thought it was phenomenal, like, you know, everyone else. Uh, and so I was absolutely excited to see this. Obviously, you know, I've been being a Kiki Palmer since, you know, True Jackson VP and Akilah and the B, like the stuff that we grew up with. But, like, Crazy Sexy Cool and, like, Star, and, like, she's been, she's been popping up everywhere. You hustlers. Know. Hustlers, yeah, thank you. I keep forgetting about Hustlers. Great. Um, and you know what? I kept hearing about Nope in a lot of really mixed ways. I'm like, oh, it's super ambitious. But, like, if you don't get what it's going for, it's about a lot of things that don't really click. And, like, it's not as, you know, horror-based, but, you know, the cast are great and, you know, all these different things. Uh, this book is great. I've been thinking about it for the last two days, and I was like, I think I love this. Yes, dude. I am fist-pumping um, because I'm a bro. No, because bro. I am so – bro. I'm so proud that we have – a creator, a writer, director, like uh, an actor too. He's a freaking triple, quadruple threat. And he Peel has his hold in the industry, blending comedy and horror to a point where we realized we had been deprived, audiences, we realized we've been deprived of a creator like this the moment we got get out we realized okay no like we need more of this he delivered us and it was still like out the park then he comes back with nope which is an odd title for something like this like i think it's more i think it's a a more fitting title would be around the 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 impossible shot right what's significant to this movie is the idea the art of capturing on film the art of um finding proof and so The, the idea of spectacle is pretty much the overarching thing Absolutely. And so I think that while that may have been a more fitting title, just to wrap everything up nicely, Nope is Peel's own little cherry on top. Like that's his taste. Um, and I, and I love it. Every, it's a funny moment too, because every time that's said in the theaters, you're just like, that's why it's called Nope, because it's the kind of situation where a character can be facing just the void and go, nah, I'm gonna turn around. Like I'm actually just going to go do anything else. And I love that kind of realism in his movies. I will say this about Nope, in that the first half of the movie, I see where a lot of horror fans are coming from. Some of the more mixed reaction, which is that 
yeah, it does feel a bit like a jarring shift. Like I remember at a certain point I thought, yeah. And I was thinking, should I be feeling? Yeah. Because the first half of the movie gets me thinking much more in like my head, much more in like that get out zone of like looking at every pixel of the frame, trying to figure out what Jordan Peele has crafted in every image. We should also mention uh, Hoytep and Hoytema, who shot uh, Interstellar and a bunch of other stuff, shoots this, and it's gorgeous. Uh, the nighttime stuff is amazing. The way he shoots, you know, black skin is unlike anything we've seen in Hollywood nowadays. Can we talk about how much of this film, while, I mean, I think a large portion of it does happen during the day, and that's that's nice because we don't get a lot of horror during the day, but at night, these scenes, these shots are beautiful. Like, I was impressed by how they were able to execute both capturing this night sky, I mean, whatever they insert post, but this night sky, this planal area, this, um, of course, our stars, the horses, everything looked lit to perfection, and it's it's remarkable when some when a film can do that and you don't even notice it like it, would any would can other people recreate it yeah maybe professionals in the industry but for people on you know people back in our seats like it's a dream to try and pull off something like that that is just astounding but it goes to i think jordan peele's appreciation for not visuals for the camera because not only does I think he collaborate with Hoytema so damn well in this, one of the characters played by Michael Alcott is literally a cinematographer who is crucial in getting the thing of the movie to work. Is he a cinematographer for real? Yeah. What? Yo, shout out to that. It's more than capturing imagery, I think. I think it's more of the idea of what the image or what the idea of the image does to us and what it does to those little dopamine facilities that go, yes, cool. I think that's what the second part of the movie is going for, that idea of we have a goal. Now let's go to the thing. But what does the thing actually do? And what are the consequences of us doing that thing? I know I'm being super vague, but I don't want to give away what a lot of the movie is. But I will say when it does make that shift, yeah, it does feel really hoorah and awesome. And there are some really great set pieces in there. I wanted to mention what I consider to be the subplot of this film, the treatment or the expectation versus reality when it comes to wild animals. And that is made so apparent with my favorite, my fuck, my vocabulary word of the day, title cards. Like we have now a, a movie that is, again, this is executed so well that is separated initially. Well, I won't say it, but you have the names of the horses that they train, um, dividing this film among, amidst other names. And I found that to be uh, attractive. I found that to be interesting. I was on board with what they were trying to do. Um, even though I wasn't expecting like a, a divided story like that, it absolutely to me is about the, the, the wrangle of a wild animal and how you will never be able to control like a beast that, that is, is natural. I don't know. So, you know, you know, where, you know where I'm going with this? I didn't really care for the title cards because I never pegged down what they were actually doing. Uh, and I thought it was going somewhere with Stephen Young's character and it just never does. Uh, but if that's the idea of it, it kind of makes the end of the movie a bit more depressing. Really? I, again, I can't go into it because we're not Wait, spoilers. I mean, but no, you're right. But if I'm trying to argue that point, I, I kind of see what you mean. It's like, is the is that impossible shot worth possible collateral uh, yeah absolutely um there was one more thing to mention before it left my mind and that is that the most horrific part of this film i think the most jarring and the most that's going to kind of it's going to shock you and it, it, i think that it is the scariest part of the film it's the middle it is the it is the history of one of our central characters here in the film and it is reminiscent of you know a headline story or a, a tra tragic story like horrific incident that occurred that made that broke headlines like 
maybe one or two decades ago involving a, uh, you know, an animal attack on its owner. I mean, that's a headline that stuck with me that I'll always remember. Like, were you, did you get reminiscence of that? I think that part was one of the freakiest bits of the movie in that it is another instance of Jordan Peele using the camera and going, look at this and don't look away. It's that subtle kind of visceral horror that I think this movie handles so freaking well. And then when it is fully explained, it becomes really complex when you actually get towards it. And even more interesting once you actually think of the themes in the movie. The beauty, like he's a writer because that, that he captures that scene and allows Yun's character to like describe it happening in an SNL skit. And you have this imagery of like it being hilarious because you have uh, a person who's like Chris, Chris Kattan. Yeah. Chris Kattan. Um, is that a real character? Is that a real person? I thought that yeah, they were trying Chris to just, oh, I thought that they were doing different names in my head. I was like, oh, do they mean Chris Farley? Well, I've th- seen a lot of Chris Kattan fans being like, yeah, <laughs> they treat it as a comedic moment to like laugh at for this character's history. And you just get flashes of that grisly scene up until it happens. And it, it's notable. It's, it's, I think a conversation piece in any, in any kind of discussion of Nope, you're going to talk about the middle of the movie because it's, I think that's why it's about wild animals. It- it's the blur between the two acts that I think is the most terrifying because it's the characters really trying to get a grip on whatever this thing is after knowing what it actually is. And when you kind of, again, going back to that wild animal comparison, can you actually get ahead of that? Or is the natural order things or what you think is the natural order things so much more, you know, concrete in its, uh, in its structure. And I think that's absolutely fascinating. But again, I, what was I just thinking? Anyway, go on, go on. You will have an, an excellent time with this film if you go back and watch the very first trailer that was released for it. Have your eyes just light up and ask as many questions as you want. Don't watch any other trailers and then go to the theaters because let me tell you, Subversion is the name of the game for Peel and he pulls it off so, so like teasingly. And I think, um, it, it, he de- delivered, he executes a good picture overall. Uh, Brandon. I was going to say just one more point. point. I know we've been kind of on the more cynical dark side of the whole thing where it's like, oh, you know, the underbelly of spectacle and like what we've been expected to see in that kind of whole thing. But I also want to go to the other side of that, which is that, again, no spoilers, but by the end of the movie, the whole point of the movie is getting the big, exciting thing by working together. And it works that way because everyone's skill set, whether it's, you know, uh, Kaluuya or Palmer or uh, Brandon Perea, who we haven't brought up yet, who was fantastic in this, like everyone on that te- that kind of mismingled team they have has a role to play in the, in the eventual end goal. And you kind of feel yourself being, again, like a part of the group, like you feel a part of this goal. And it's this really kind of primal experience that goes back to Jordan Peele being like, yeah, you should see this in the theater. That's why we shot an IMAX. Thank you for mentioning that this is a film that is only elevated in the theatrical experience. Like accessibility is still very important for audiences across the nation. So if you can make it to a theater, that is amazing. If you cannot, that is understandable. But I found myself just enthralled by the environment that was created around me because of the theater that I was in. Like, I think that if I had experienced this without the booming of a theater around me, it, it might've felt like a different experience, but uh, that's just to say that, God damn, do I love a theater and do I love a loud movie like this? There is a scene in the barn that would not have been nearly as freaky if it wasn't in a theater. I completely agree. Let's go to ratings. Uh, for me, this is a really strong eight and a half. And again, the only reason I don't go as high as a nine is because I think there is some inconsistency in its ideas. As I mentioned in my tweet, it's a movie that tries to be a lot of things. And most of its things, I think, hit the bullseye very well. But I can totally see that throwing off some people who either wanted 
one or the other done really right, especially off of, again, just how we forget just how freaking consistent Get Out is. That movie is razor tight in its focus from start to finish. And that's why it's become the cultural show it has. This, I hope it does, because I think it is a throwback to 70s blockbuster sci-fi in the best way, but also incredibly modern, incredibly retrospective, and incredibly communal in, you know, horror, comedy, sci-fi, drama community. Like, the family dynamic between Kaluuya and Palmer is why I think you're locked into this, but the characters are so endearing. On a technical and narrative level, I was really all for it. There are just some smaller things that I would have liked to have done, but by all means, a total recommendations from a non-horror noob. Excellent rating, by the way, Brandon. With minor plot holes and a third act that I think comes a little too late, um, I found myself entirely, uh, I'm going to use the same word, sorry, enthralled throughout this experience and uh, being a fan of Peel, being a fan of the genre, I'm just so happy to see him continue to contribute excellent pieces of work. This is an eight for me, easily a movie that I'm going to be checking out again before it leaves the theater here in the next two weeks. And uh, I'm sure that rating can only go up, but... uh, Let's wait and see. This is a film that I think you all should go check out Uh, sooner, the better try and get that theater experience. But if not, just make sure it makes your watch list for 2022. Brandon, you and I have discussed movies for a while on this pod. Okay. But it is time to turn over a new leaf and talk about the finale of a Disney plus series that you and I have been keeping on track with. Um, It is Iman Vellani's Miss Marvel. It is Bisha K. Ali's Miss Marvel, but yes. Thank you. (laughs) But it is is very much Iman Vellani's Miss Marvel. She is still excellent in this. Uh, Yeah, we talked about the pilot a couple weeks ago. And actually, funny thing, while I was making the graphics for this episode, uh, this is going to also have graphics for Nope and Miss Marvel in it, which was the same time we talked about the Nope trailer and the first episode of Miss Marvel, which is kind of a fun change of faith. Uh, Miss Marvel, episodes two through six. We're going to talk about the rest (laughs) of the series uh, throughout. When we last left off, uh, Kamala, once again played by Iman Vellani, got powers. We didn't know how, uh, but we knew it had something to do with the bangle of her great-grandmother, Aisha. Uh, we also see Nakia again, uh, trying to reform the Moss Council to try and make it more modern. We see Kamo's parents dealing with uh, Kamo's brother's wedding. And then the clandestines show up, who are essentially, the show kind of describes them as genies, but not genies, uh, from another kind of light dimension, kind of similar to America Chavez, but not really. And then we have the introduction of Kamran, played by Arusha, who is initially Kamala's crush, much to the chagrin of Bruno, and then becomes kind of an adversary, kind of a hero. There's a whole thing with a group called the Red Daggers, who may or may not be willing to help Kamran and the clandestines, along with a lot of backstory for Kamala's uh, great-grandmother Aisha and the uh, history of the Indian-Pakistani partition. It all leads up to a lot of really interesting fight sequences, a lot of a really great scene at the school, some great stuff with the community. And frankly, I still love this show. I really do. I think it might be... Aside from WandaVision and the pilot of Loki, my favorite Marvel series that we've gotten so far. But uh, Noah, are you nearly as high as I am on this? I would argue yes. I think that this is going to be a highly rated uh, Marvel Disney Plus project uh, that you've heard from me so far. I've already mentioned the standout star, Iman Vellani, and what she's been able to bring uh while I'm not super familiar like with the comic character, Ms. Marvel, I love the energy that she just dives into her performance with i think it's what the mcu is going to need to really shine in the in these next couple phases i cannot wait to see the chemistry with uh captain marvel and uh rambo's character that uh, whose hero name I'm, i'm forgetting now but there are some great things that happen in the second half of the season for one they drop any kind of like love story that they were trying to like and not initiate but they uh bruno thankfully is not like just resort uh sideline to just being the love interest which i was very happy about because all of a sudden the story became so tight that i was 
I was, I didn't have time to be distracted by other elements in the story because I was with Kamala on her journey, both into the past. Um, they go to Pakistan where, uh, we're able to meet, uh, Kamala's grandmother, who is already hilariously like a scene stealer from those phone calls. And, uh, she remains consistent when she finally meets her face to face. We have a new group sort of faction called the Red Daggers who you know, are they against the clandestines? Are they against the jinns? Uh, it is revealed that Kamala is a jinn, and that is really where her power stems from. At least initially, that's how it is defined. And then we have some great action sequences here. I think that uh, when it comes to performances, I'm going to bite my tongue or I'm going to like eat my words because initially I didn't love this news, but now I'm happy to share it with you all. Um, it was shared that Matt Lintz, the character of Bruno, actually was like in the running and made it to maybe even like one of the final rounds um, of playing Spider-Man, of playing Peter Parker. And I feel like throughout the second half of the series, he had moments where I saw that. So apparently, like if this comes as a shock to you, Brandon, let me know. Oh, he has a lot of Peter Parker energy, but I did not know he was in the running for it. And I'm not shocked at all. You're up against Tom Holland. How could you win? <laughs> you're, you're, um, up against, you're up against Asa Butterfield. How do you win? I want to get to kind of like the big moments in the finale, but I'm thinking now back into the middle of the series and reminding myself of this show is so much grounded in family and the, the love that Kamala's family feels for her, even when her mother's, you know, pissed off at her or grounds her or, you know, takes out her, um, she's reactive towards her. It all is minimized when you're reminded of the love that this family has and the chemistry that they're all able to pull off, even um, between like uh, Kamala and her older brother, who has like a very goofy, like, yeah, I'm here to help you kind of, kind of vibe to him that I found myself completely gravitating towards. Um, I loved the way that the final act came about. And I really, really liked the moment that we had all, I imagine, had been waiting for, which is where finally Kamala is able to grow. Like she can just be a giant. And that's what I've been waiting for is to see those Mr. Fantastic a la powers come through. I absolutely love it. And I think most of the times I thought it was wavering. It just really just picked itself up. Like at the end of episode three, where like the whole wedding action sequence has where Kamala's brother is getting married, the wedding gets crashed by the clandestines, and then she gets blamed. And it's like, what have you done? Like, how could you ruin your brother's wedding? The very next episode is Kamala and her mom going to Karachi and kind of mending their relationship. And you're right. That sense of consistent love and true admiration for one another, I think, is what carries the show through and through. I think really also shown in uh, episode five, where, slight spoiler, uh, Kamala goes back in time, basically, and gets to see, uh, her, gets to see Aisha and, you know, her family's ancestry and things like that, how they came into contact with the Jin. And yeah, it's a little predictable, but it's really great and has some great historical context for, again, someone like me who didn't really know a lot about the, uh, the partition. And the whole, th that whole thread of the show really goes through that idea of shared familial generational trauma and that idea of coming out the other side of it and Kamala being the shiny example of it. I just found that those angles of it really profound and they never lost their shine to me. Going back to our episode one review, I think we were on the both same page where it's like, don't make Miss Marvel huge, like not size huge, but like make a giant, you know, action climax where like, oh, the Department of Damage trope goes in, who also, they're kind of schlubs in this. We didn't go over that, but like, yeah, a bit of a red herring with the Department of Damage Control. They're not all that. Uh, but even going into that, like the ending fight, spoiler, is between, you know, Kamala and uh, Kamran. And I like the idea of both of them. Again, going back to the idea of the partition, going back to the, you know, exiling of the, uh, the clandestines, I like that idea of Kamran and Kamala being kind of 
the figureheads of their respective generations and that side of trauma each, because those traumas of, you know, Aisha and her grandparents and Najime and that whole, you know, scene back in the partition and trying to work out that fight in the modern day as the community comes behind, really behind both of them, because they don't really go against Kamran. It's really only when the department comes in control. So I like that idea as a final fight as much as I could any for a big superhero fight in this show. It does kind of come across like oh my gosh a little dark when immediately the first thing that all of those cops around Kamala and Kamara just start firing and so to see Kamala potentially be like gunned down I was just like holy shit like this show is getting a little like visceral or a little like you know that was just to me like oh shit like she could have been shot right there um (laughs) although although Kamala did break a kid's leg uh, trying to (laughs) save him but you know regardless of that I thought that that was like the darkest the show was gonna go Uh, there's that great moment at the end where the kids on TikTok is just like well she broke my leg that's fine (laughs) he's like so was she like was she not strong enough to break to save me that day that was so funny that was great Uh, but I I did want to mention it's a little it's not totally consistent because there's the whole thing of like the department of damage control going against the community and like all of them are wrapping arms but also the cops are with them so I'm like, is are you critiquing law enforcement or are you not going far enough? Like that felt like a, but whatever. Brandon, there's a reveal at the end of this series that Bruno has dissected, has analyzed Kamala's DNA and he found something different. He found a, this is going to be a word that is so hot on your feeds right now. He found a mutation. Our girl Kamala is the first MCU introduced mutant. So that does mean we are so close now to expanding our MCU world into mutant territory. Inhumans, I think they're getting side tabled for now because right now it is all about the mutants and Kamala, she is one. How do you feel about that, Brandon? How did you feel about that reveal? I guess we're getting mutants, except are we? Because yes, I am aware that Kevin Feige and the showrunner said after the show, they're like, Yes, that's mutants. It meant to be mutants. I know that's what they said. The actual line is that she has a mutation and she says at the end, well, I guess there must be a name for that. I think that was their cheeky way of being like, okay, we'll do it as a mutant, but she could be an inhuman. So like there is obviously that room because inhumans have mutations. This is also my way of being like, Kamala's not a mutant. I don't, want that. <laughs> I, I don't want that to be the introduction. I know they tried in humans and it backfired on them. And I know they don't want to touch it. Might as well be a black bolt and multiverse of madness. But I don't think that's right for Kamala as a character. That's just me personally. Hey, and this is a, this is the space to say it, Brandon. Um, there is a second reveal and that is the post credit scene. Um, we have a Kamala who is, I think she's like chilling in bed and I don't know why, but she gets like flustered or something and gets up and moves towards her closet only to be blasted black blasted back and bursting through her door is not Iman Vellani. It is Brie Larson as the captain Marvel. So She's what here. the hell, what the hell is going on? She's wearing one of the bangles of Aisha, which is what I'm calling it. Um, she's wearing one of the bangles. She looks confused as to where she is, but she clearly seems aware of what just happened. Um, there are several th- theories on the internet. The one that I'm rolling with is somehow the bangle has enabled the wearer to teleport places, like swap places with the other bangle wearer. Like it's, how do you feel about this branded Captain Marvel? Now, unfortunately they don't share the screen, but she shows up in Miss Marvel series. And it's, although it's bigger than the reveal I had expected, because I wanted Rambo's character to show up having Captain freaking Marvel there. Like you just know, I hope that they know what they're doing with the Marvels. 
I really hope it's not like Thor love and thunder when it's finally delivered to us because, Ooh, but no, I'm so ready for that. It was so nice to see Brie Larson return in the costume as well. Three things. One in Nia DaCosta, we trust. I trust her with the marbles. Number two, I love Brie Larson's outfit in this. For whatever reason, like the rolled up sleeves are a great look. I love like the wig. Like it just looks all great. Number three, I have two theories. Number one, I think that's a reference to uh, to the actual Kamala Khan comics where when she becomes an inhuman, she goes through like this hallucination journey and she imagines herself as Carol Danvers and it becomes this thing of like, this is everything I wanted, but it's actually not. It's kind of twisted. Like I shouldn't have to protect myself as like this white blonde woman. I can be myself. So I thought that was kind of a reference to that. Some people have shared that theory where when when the way that Captain Marvel is looking at herself and looking at her surroundings, it's almost in that same way that Kamala would be. So is that Kamala, you know, shape-shifting into her? That's the, that is a theory that some people have. So I like the fact that you and I have some separate ways that this could go. The other theory is that I haven't seen people pointing this out. Uh, it might tie into Shang-Chi. Because remember at the end of Shang-Chi, we see Captain Marvel with the rings. She's talking about like the backstory of it all. So I'm thinking maybe the rings and the bagel are somehow connected. Dude, 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 hold up. Not you speaking fraudulent and fake material on our podcast. Captain Marvel is not in Shang-Chi. Yeah, at the end of Shang-Chi. Are you serious? Hold on. There's two, there's two post credits. Do you remember the post credits scene? So there's one where Shang-Chi's sister uh, takes over the empire that her father had operated. And then there's a second one. Is that the second one, Brandon? Well, no, the second the... one is when they sing karaoke with Wong, isn't it? No, so that's the end of the movie. And then the actual post credit scene, the first one, the second one is when you're thinking of with Shaoling. The yeah. first one is with uh, Shang-Chi and Katie in Wong's lair. And then you see the holograms of Bruce and uh, Carol and they're just like, yeah, I have no idea what this is. Uh, it could be anything. Okay, reminder to our listeners, go watch the go watch the Shang-Chi in its entirety because it's amazing, but stay for those credit scenes. We should not have to remind Marvel fans to stay after, but we still have to. Oh boy. Uh, Brandon, do you have some parting remarks for this series and what it accomplished for you or what you hope to see in the future from it? Oh, do you ex- do you want a season 2? Do you think a season 2 would work for Miss uh, Kamala Khan here? Desperately. And I think for almost any I think for almost any of the series, Kamala works best as a as a series, you know, plotted out kind of story. I don't think she needs a giant overarching narrative. I appreciate what they did with Kamran. If he comes back, great. But again, I think this series works so well when it is Kamala and her family and her community and these really small issues, whether it's, you know, the food truck guy or the stuff with the mosque or, you know, going through, you know, stuff with law enforcement. I think there's all those smaller stakes that the scope can really work with. You know, if they want to bring back Cameron, if they want to bring back any of like the clandestine stuff, great. But I think they can really make this a really fun, interesting, but also really in-depth kind of small superhero saga that I think Spider-Man was always meant to be. And that I think Kamala's best material works as the best. So, yes, count me in for season two if it ever happens. When it comes to the uh, the cultural diversity that now we have on Disney Plus with our Marvel heroes, when it comes to like these leading women um, in these roles, it, it comes to the fun, the family. Like Miss Marvel really does pack it all. I'm not going to knock it for it having graphics that don't excite me because it has so many other elements that just make you drawn to its uh, foundation, drawn to its uh, its imagery, its main characters, its uh, the costuming, like you see Miss Marvel don like five or six different costumes for her hero throughout this series. And that's wonderful, right, Brandon? Sorry, can we talk about, we didn't talk about this, the ending of how she gets her name and costume, like the costume is from her mom and the name Marvel is her name in Urdu. Like, oh my God. 
again, the importance of family. Like she, it's a metaphor. It's all heartwarming, and you're gonna cry. I'm worried that without a character like Kamala, without a character like Tom Holland's Peter Parker, then our Avengers might become a little dark. Like they might be, they might not have that kind of joyfulness and youthfulness um, being able to be brought out so easily. You know, Guardians is going to end soon. What will we have after that? We need something like Miss Marvel, like Kate Bishop to really bring joy and bring um, a lot of the lightheartedness into these comic book stories because they don't always have to be as dark as like Loki's situation or um, WandaVision situation. I, I love that we have this kind of diverse storytelling here. I am stoked for a season two. I want to see more, more, more of all that she has to offer. I want to see the powers get bigger and better on the big screen, but I'm more than happy to, to sign up for like a continued series with Kamala Khan as Miss Marvel. I don't know if you're going ratings. I'm just going to be quick with this. For me, this is a really strong 9 out of 10. This is the most I've liked an MCU project this year, and that includes things that I have enjoyed, whether it's, you know, Multiverse of Madness or whether it's Moon Knight. This surpasses any of them. It's charming. It's wonderful. It has heart, but it's also incredibly intelligent and, and forceful about a lot of Indian and Pakistani and Muslim dynamics that have been shafted by media for a long time. Iman Vellani is a GD star. Put her in things. She's amazing. I think the show knows what to do with, with its adjusted power sets and source material more than I thought we were initially implying it to. I don't love some of the stuff at the ending, but again, that doesn't temper the, any of the other just really exciting stuff that I found in this. It's a great street-level MCU thing. If you've been at all tired of anything the MCU is doing, doing, this is the antidote for that. This was an eight and a half out of 10 for me. Completely enjoyable. You know, you've heard me uh, sing its praises here on the podcast. And I think that if you haven't tuned into it yet, for whatever reason, uh, go ahead and give it a shot. The first episode alone will impress you enough to continue. And uh, regarding pacing, regarding uh, development, I just think it it carries the torch uh, very proudly. Episodes one through six ties itself up nicely. And there's not a lot of time to get distracted. So the story you get, it's moving and you're on board with it. And it'll set you right up for what to expect from uh, Miss Marvel in the Marvels. And that is, of course, how we're going to end episode 32, starting with all things Marvel and ending with all things Marvel. We promise we'll talk about other things. We did talk about a lot of other things, so go yeah. check that out. And if you'd like to comment about those with us, please follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. That's Twitter and Instagram at Plot Devices Pod. You'll get updates to when all of our shows are coming out, which will be on our Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and RSS feed at Plot Devices. Just search for our name, along with our side series, Directorial Debuts, which is also on that channel as well. All five episodes of our season zero are up there as well. And if you have any suggestions for season one when that eventually comes out again comment let us know those as well and leave us ratings because they obviously help with that as well i'd like to thank my co-host noah guzman noah what do you got going on in your life and what do people know about uh hello everyone i first want to promote the tiktok uh we are in our infancy okay i have posted our first tiktok and i'm so proud of uh the viewership that it has received and the type of comments uh feedback that i've gotten from the crowd that just says hey you know this is the stuff that we like and i really hope to create more content throughout there for you all um it is on TikTok at Plot Devices Podcast, you'll see our nice little popcorn kernel logo, uh, along with one video up for now. I'll go ahead and work on the quick hit that we recorded today. Um, but I think looking ahead, I'm watching a lot of TV. I'm watching Westworld. Um, I'm checking out uh, the new horror that's on Netflix called Uma with Sandra Oh. Uh, there's just plenty to watch, and I got to figure out, you know, what is going to be an exciting topic to bring to you on the next show. And I cannot wait to return to my recording studio and attack episode 33. Wonderful and well said. Uh, you guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. That's Twitter and Instagram at the Movie King 45. Follow my band at killbox underscore music. Yes, if you are at all in the Phoenix area, you can come see us at Lost Leaf 
uh, July 26th, which is hopefully by the time this episode comes out. Ourselves, Valley Orange, Hyperchromatica, and Vintage Clothes, all at the Lost Sleep at 9 p.m. Uh, charges free. We might be selling merch as well, so please come out and see us before our bass player, Von Jones, goes out to Seattle. Uh, and once again, Bot Devices Pod, Twitter, Instagram, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and RSS feed. Listen on there. Let us know how we're doing. So for that being said, for episode 32 for Plot Devices, my name is Brandon King. That has been Noah Guzman. Happy Comic-Con weekend, and we'll see you guys next week.